Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Man there trying to stop Trump from getting himself into further trouble. It's not a bad ball for Pelle on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. I want a great goal that one. Carlos Alberto. Maradona just walked away from Huddle Saldano. Welcome to the Scoreless Thriller podcast. I'm Alex and I'm joined as always by Leon. Leon, how are you doing? Doing great and very happy to be here tonight. And we're delighted to be joined today by Marcela Morayerajo. Marcela is a Argentinian football journalist and she wrote the obituary for Diego Maradona in The Guardian and she wrote the chapter in the book The, uh, the Jaws of Victory, A History of Football's Nearly Men, which we are going to cover on the podcast today talking about the Argentinian national team between 2006 and 2014, which is kind of the story, I feel, of uh, Messi's pursuit of uh, a a tournament victory for the national team. But before we sort of go into that story and also the Messi thing, I'm kind of curious to get your perspective on how has Argentina sort of dealt with uh, the death of Maradona in the past couple of months? In particular, how has it sort of dealt with moving forward with his legacy and how it kind of places him both in like culturally and also within within football so i think there's lots of uh, th- th- there's many different angles at which we can look at what the impact of maradona's death has been in argentina one is the media coverage i think he, throughout his life he was very um 
prominent as a as a, as a, as a content facilitator, if you like, as a provider of content, and and that hasn't ceased since his death. He has there is a, an ongoing investigation into the circumstances surrounding his death. Was there any negligence on the part of the medical team that was in charge of his um, post-op recovery? And every every day, new uh, phones are hacked, or new developments arise, or the the prosecutors call new witnesses, and and that uh, is incredibly prominent here, local locally. That the TV and the more sensationalist papers cover it all the time. And it's quite a dark and sinister tale, really. There aren't very many happy takeaways from, from what's going on there. It, it, it really seems that he was um, not, not very well looked after and, and really very unwell in the last, certainly the last week of his, of his life, and maybe the last couple of weeks. So that dominates the media narrative quite a lot. And then there's the kind of the, the more uh, emotional, um, raw response from from people, from either football lovers or just people generally. You know, I, I've been working on a football documentary now about the 1986 World Cup, so I've had lots of uh, occasion to talk about that time, and people are genuinely um, concerned and 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 keen to discuss their own memories of him as if it was someone they truly knew it's it's really interesting it's like loads of different people from all walks of life older women young children who've maybe never seen him play but everybody has a a, a very personal response to the fact that he died how brilliant a player he was what uh you know what his life had been like and i i find that very interesting because it's it's not um, like a distant celebrity. It's like someone close to them has died. And, and I think that it is quite telling of, of how he worked uh, emotionally as a celebrity. That it, it Somehow he, he made everyone feel they were close to him or that he was an important part of our lives, even though we maybe didn't you know, know him at all. Um, but, but overall, I think that the balance between those things, the, the true emotional response to loss that, 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 that's very genuine from, from people and the um, overwhelming story of just, uh, you know, a, a sordid and tragic life of excess that ended very sadly and, and lonely and in quite a dark way that's just being played out all the time. So a little bit like when he was alive, there's this kind of, there's two things that are constantly being weighed up against each other, a kind of deity, almost deity-like adoration for, for a, an idol combined with this just gr grueling and gruesome um, horror of you know addiction and despair and betrayal and loneliness that that's that's how I see it anyway and has there been sort of um a move towards like a reckoning sort of how people have sort of facilitated his successes in in the way that you know people looking like reflecting back onto society is there things that we should like people should have done stop the kind of train before it got along that way and you know like in I'm thinking of things like his, like his doctor becoming like a media uh, personality and stuff like this. 
Well, the doctor that, that, that was on the media every day outside the hospital is one of the people that's been indicted um, and is under investigation. So he gave a press conference in which he burst into tears and said, I did everything I could and, and so on. Uh, no, I don't think there's any social, societal reckoning at all. I mean, I personally, I think there should be, and I think there's a lot of uh, lessons to be learned about how overall as societies and I don't mean just in Argentina we yeah. treat celebrity and, and particularly uh, you know the pathology in celebrity and we just consume it like as entertainment um, in a way Maradona is like the ultimate Truman show, you know the, the reality show par excellence of our time um, but but I don't see that there's any of that going on certainly not in the media but but also I mean I tweeted not so long after he died we should all uh, we could have you know we were all responsible we could all have um, helped prevent this and I, I got quite a lot of people saying not me mate there's nothing yeah. I could have done I mean that no I don't think you know I don't think people feel responsible at all um, as, as a society I think I mean I've been interviewing a lot of his teammates from 1986 and I get the sense that they loved him very much, but but it was difficult to get to him. I, I feel he was quite isolated from his true friends in the last few months, for sure, and maybe even some of his children. I think he was surrounded by, uh, a, you know, he he's, he always had an entourage, which yeah. changed over time. But there's always a, a kind of an inner circle. And I think this last one was quite um, quite fears in, 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 in the guarding of him. So very few people had access to him, e even those who loved him. And I think that's possibly uh, quite tragic and something that has been aired quite a lot. But I, but I, don't, I don't, so even those close to him knew that there wasn't much else they could do because it was very difficult to get to him. And I think, you know, he chose he chose his life and the way to live it and the people around him. And um, it was very difficult to get, get round that. So I don't see what anyone could have done particularly. I think this, uh, the, the, the lawyer who was working with him most closely and who appointed the doctor who is now indicted, there's a whole series of things they've done. Like they've patented every name under the sun that might be vaguely similar to Diego or Maradona or the hand of God. And then mm. there was a list published the other day about this kind of a hundred and something names that they've kind of patented as, as, as belonging to them. And there's also some strange documents whereby he seems to have signed rights for certain things to these people, which again, it's being questioned in court. So it's, it's all um, very much, not your run-of-the-mill uh, situation. You know, there isn't a, 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 a straightforward estate to be divided up between straightforward in, uh, inheritors, that nothing straightforward. And I think the society at large thinks, well, he wasn't like any of us, really. He, you know, he was different. Different rules applied to him, different uh, expectations. So I, there isn't a sort of, oh, we should have done it differently. It's very much a, like something you watch.
that that happened next and then that happened next and yeah and it's and, something and to it's, be and a product it, yeah. to be enjoyed right yeah. it's like he's not yeah. one of us it's a like a art that we enjoy I think it's very interesting though because in the one uh, documentary we watched for preparation they talked a lot about Diego as this one persona and then Maradona as the public persona and while Maradona was dealing with everything and also building maybe a facade uh, that then is seen by the broader public and there was still Diego the small boy from Via Fiorito I think if I pronounced correctly um, who was very much a person and the young boy trying to figure out how everything works and very relatable also um, towards his friends and his closer, um, closer relatives. But then as uh, his career moved on, the Maradona persona uh, became more and more dominant. At least that's kind of what I took out from that. I think, I mean, I think that's uh, Fernando Signorini, who was his uh, physical trainer and coach for many, many years, said that in Capadia's film. And he, he's in fact said it a lot of times. With Diego, I would go to the end of the world, but with Maradona, I wouldn't walk to the corner of the street. And it, and it kind of stuck. And I, I mean, I like that uh, distinction in Capadia's film, but I don't believe that there are two separate beings. I think Diego Maradona is one person, and I think both uh, or all sides of him are a part of one single thing. And, and this is something I, I've kind of... Um, held for for a very long time. I think the the this idea that he's clever with his feet but stupid with his head, or an artist with the ball but an idiot, and you know, as a father, I just don't believe you can do that distinction that 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 simply. And I and I don't think it's conducive to anything interesting. I mean, I I love Fernando Signorini very much, and I have a lot of time for him, but I I would disagree that. Um, and I don't think he meant he meant it as a as a real distinction. I think he was just saying it was a way of saying there is a side of Diego that I'm familiar with and that I love very much and that I'm comfortable with. But when yeah. he becomes the celebrity, he's I don't want to be around him. And I think it's precisely because he was always the celebrity on at some level, or always the the you know it's, he's he's meshed into one. I mean. I, Sometimes I think of it as a Mobius strip. You know, you think, oh, that side A is Diego and side B is Maradona yeah. and we can just turn it around. But in fact, it's like a single continuous two-sided piece of eternal tape. And I, even the two goals against England, I now refuse to acknowledge them as two separate goals. I'm, I'm just, just thinking it was one incident that starts... Yeah. Before the handball and ends at the end of this of the solo run, and it's just a few minutes where a single event happened. After which the result says two, or whatever. It doesn't even matter. But he is always constantly the same thing, and it's inescapable. And so, um, you know, the daughters are the daughters of Maradona, and the uh, you know the the nurse is having to either you know get some pills down Maradona. And, um, you know, there isn't a Diego, I think, I mean, I know some people who are quite well known and they manage to, to keep a distinction. They, you know, they put a, a persona on and go on stage and perform and then they're very different. And they've got a private life that they are handling well. And, and, yeah. and, and in those cases, I would say, oh, there is the celebrity and then there's my friend and they're two distinct 
kind of uh, modes, if you like, yeah. you switch. But I don't think he could do that. I think more than anyone Indeed, I know, yeah, yeah. He, was, he was inescapably Diego Maradona all the time. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you um, that uh, I thought of when you were just speaking there was um, you, you mentioned you were speaking to his teammates from uh, the 1986 World Cup, and I've, I've in in the in the days after his death, I remember reading a lot of people talking about why he was sort of lo- so loved by his teammates was that you know he wouldn't throw his hands up in the air and look very frustrated, and they compared this to sort of other superstar players who would get frustrated with their teammates and not being at the same level. Was this is this sense sort of something that you've heard from them as well, that even though he was at another level, he was still able to sort of mesh and uh, compartmentalize the, the yes. talents of his teammates? Yes, yes. I think um, particularly in the 1986 World Cup, but, but practically everybody who's ever worked with him in football says that. You know, he, he was a hard worker and he was very much not someone to put his hands up and say, oh, that was your fault. I mean, these guys revere him and they and they constantly say he was one of us he was one of us but then they relay a kind of daily life that shows he was absolutely not, yeah, one, not of them. one of them <laughs> completely his own rules and 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 own thing going on but he was definitely a good uh member of the team he was a teammate and he was very loyal to them and um and to other players you know yeah he was no he wasn't a uh I mean, I don't want to say he wasn't a prima donna because, in a way, he he was the prima donna par excellence. But he was, he was a he loved football, and that's real, and that's genuine. And I think he made a real effort to train and play and run for the ball and look up, you know, look, um, partake with his teammates. I mean, the, it's quite quite lovely narrative working out in terms of how. Although Bilada had said before the World Cup, this will be Maradona plus 10, and that's the only certainty about this group, that they all worked in, in a system where, yeah. you know, they could get the best of Maradona, but then each had a really important function to fulfil in a role. But, but he was participative in, 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 in allowing to happen, you know, I think. But I don't think it would have become such an adored... Uh, and revered player if he hadn't been able to work in a team because football is a team game you don't you know I mean we we were talking about Cortázar a little earlier who really didn't like football because he he didn't feel it had the drama of solo sports he thought tennis and boxing where it's kind of one man duels Mm. with another or woman and we become bringing it to up to date (laughs) times (laughs) Um, but teams, but whereas football really needs a team, you can't have, you know, you can have a great player alone, but ultimately that's just not, not, um, not what moves us about the game. The game works as a, as, as an emotional, um, uh, inspiration. If, if you have a good team doing something collectively, even if they're not very good, but you still need to know where they are in relation to each other, what the spaces are, what's happening on the whole pitch. Maradona was the best at that, as well as the best with the ball. So he could dribble and head and do all his little kicky tricks and whatever, but 
he was an incredibly intelligent reader of the entire pitch and he knew what was going on and he was able to um, aid everyone for the best result possible. And you, and you can see it match by match in 1986, how they all start to learn um, better how to function. So for sure, I think um, that's, that was absolutely his, you know, the, the thing that made him amazing while he was a player. But he hasn't been playing football for a very long time and he still remained amazing. So, you know, we need to kind of keep looking at what was going on with this guy because 1986 was a very long time ago. I'm thinking because you talked uh, you talked about um, Cartaza and that he said that some other other sports may bring along more drama, but isn't the Cassie Cassie element that you described in the chapter, um, which is about always just falling short of something in football, mm. isn't that this, this bittersweet element that also we have talked a lot about in this podcast? Isn't that also something that conveys a lot of drama and human emotions, and that is maybe in that regard, not particular to football, but especially strong in that game because there's so many factors, because there are so many different variables that you have to think about and that can, can come together. Definitely. I mean, I, I don't agree with Cortaza. You're reading him. Um, I, yeah, I think, um, no, I think football is the perfect conduit for all of those things, which can happen in any any or many other spheres. I mean, it, of arts, of drama, of performing arts. I mean, just now I've been working with a, a friend who, who writes music and helping her write a thing about how she writes music. And I was thinking this is, this, you could say this about football as well. You know, there's all, there's many facets um, of creative endeavors and 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 performance. So football is performative and it's creative. Um, and then also because it's competitive, it, it has the elements of conflict or war. Like you know, there's a, a, a some people like metaphors with war or military action. Definitely um, competition at the highest level. And so it has many ingredients that we could all relate to and and from from you can come at it from different angles so it's i think you can explain its appeal very well if you are willing to accept the incredible variety of you could say it's like dance with a with a dancer trying to stop you from dancing at the same time or mm -hmm. something you know i re remember saying that to a a dancer many years ago where we were talking about whether football was like dance. And then he said, oh, yeah, I forgot about the other team. <laughs> it was like, you know, I was like, now yeah. imagine yeah. someone's doing it at yeah. the same time trying to stop you. And it was like, ah, oh. so that is brilliant. You know, and we could talk for hours about why football is so appealing and, and marvellous. I think it's the... The competitive side, the, the, the results, the point scoring, but some Argentinians have called it the resultist dictatorship, you know, the, the pure lovers of the beautiful game. Others like Bilardo would just, he, Bilardo said, look, you, you don't come second, you know, either you win or you fail. And, that, and, and he drove that through every day for three years before. And, um, and I personally, I don't, I don't like that particularly. I think um, 
you know, I mean, your podcast is called The Scoreless Thriller. I think nil-nil should be an, a valid result. Yeah. I think the draw <laughs> is the best thing. Why not? Just give the cup to everybody, for God's sakes. Thank you for playing. <laughs> but because the edge of winning is so, you know, the adrenaline is undeniable, then you get another level of um, of of engagement emotional engagement so people you know even people like me who, who claim not to care about the results get palpitations at a penalty shootout or you know suddenly it matters why does this matter nobody knows and I think that's what I was trying to kind of convey in the chapter the Cassie Cassie which is you know almost or nearly which yeah. you say a lot with a, with a ball that touches a post or it just goes out or all the time in football, you're oh my god, that was almost, almost. But actually, ultimately, what do we mean almost? I mean, especially with regard to Messi, which is what I was ultimately writing about. But I think I do mention Maradona. Um, there is no almost. There's no Cassie Cassie. These guys have, you know, they've achieved what none of us could have dreamed of ever, several times over. So it's completely. Um, absurd in a way to say oh he they almost won this or he almost scored or he all when he's done everything he's done which is uh, perform his art consistently outstandingly for decades to the delight of millions and millions of people around the world possibly generations to come generations before what Almost what? He almost what? He did it. <laughs> he did it. <laughs> there is no almost, right? It's I mean there's no almost. Yeah. <laughs> I think there is this element that uh this insatiable demand for yet another talent, for yet another trophy, for yet another win. I mean, you you, you couldn't see it quite clearly with Napoli, right? After um they they won the league and they won the cup. And then Maradona says, I've, I've had enough. I'd like to move on, find something new, a new challenge maybe also. But they are so um, insisting on keeping him as kind of the guarantor for, for winning. That, that this, there is this insatiable demand by the fans, by the clubs, by everyone to keep it, to keep it going. So it is kind of this perpetuation of the cassis, right? Even though you have the trophy, even though you have won something, it's still the next season starts and it starts all over again. And it's like this perpetual motion in some in, in in some regards, is it not? Yes, I think so. And I think when if you if you lose that, then something's over. You know, if 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 fans were to go, well, we're very happy, we're very satisfied with our lot, and we're proud, and that's fine for us. You know, yeah. ready to die now. Or TV said, no, we've we've shown enough. It's good. Yeah. You know, we're not. We don't want a scandal. We don't. We don't. We're not going to discuss whether it was in or out, or the VAR made a mistake. Mm -hmm. We're a kind of contentment is is anathema to keeping the industry going, keeping the wheels in motion, and keeping the desire going. I think. I mean, I I think ultimately it does have to do with desire, satisfaction, contentment, and you know, thirst or hunger for for a new desire. So, in the same way that that perhaps the player himself, be it Maradona at Naples or, or, or Messi now at Barcelona or anyone, you know, they might go, well, this is it for me here. I want to, 
I want a new challenge, a new, a new uh, surroundings, change of scene. And that's not really very acceptable to anybody. Um, it's not kind of, it, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to kind of allow that in a way. So it is a perpetual motion uh, system. And, and if it stops, which I kind of felt earlier in 2020, there was a, a, a moment when there was no football and I thought, oh my God, this is really serious. <laughs> There's actually no football being played anywhere on the planet. I, that's never happened in my lifetime. And, you know, it, it felt more grave than anything else. That this was kind of, if it finally happened. And in fact, I, I even wrote a, a little thing which said, well, maybe Maradona will die now because if there is no football, what, what does Maradona do? And then he did die later that year. And I thought, oh my God, I killed him. Yeah. But I don't think it was me. It was just suddenly there was imaginable. A whole load of unimaginable things became imaginable. So you could yeah. say, what, what kind of, what, what set of circumstances would need to happen for Maradona to die? Or what set of circumstances would need to happen for there to be no football? And, and suddenly we had this world where the most unexpected set of circumstances were made. They made everything stop, not, you know, but for me, it was the fact that there was no football being played that really brought it home. And I suspect for artists, it was the fact that there's no theatres or cinemas or live music. But um, I don't know. I think we couldn't, it would be very strange if a lot of people thought like me and thought, yes, it's a lovely game. We just want to see everyone enjoying themselves and the score doesn't matter. It would just be a different, a different thing completely. You win some, However, you lose some. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's good to, um, to keep that voice uh, alive and alert, you know, to say, okay, but we need to be careful here what we're expecting, whether it's of Maradona trying to leave a club or Maradona trying to live a normal life or Messi trying to... Uh, find a new contract or do you know we we consume um celebritydom and we demand of our athletes um more than we would of of, of someone we knew personally or, or or of a human being we cared about and i think that dehumanization of the of the of the players is is quite dangerous and i think we do it a lot and, I, and i've now kind of been close to football for, for long enough that I can see it's not something that changes. Some people say, oh, it's different now. You know, it's different now. In 1986, the press was different or new media is different, but, but nothing's really changing in terms of our expectations of what they do. And again, to, to have a kind of quote, pandemic times at the beginning of the, of the lockdowns about a year ago in, in the UK where, where I usually live, there was a lot of debate about whether players should take a pay cut because most people were, and they, you know, in solidarity with society, they should be paid less or they should be forced to give part of their wages to, you know, the NHS or something. And, I, and again, I felt very angry about that because I think most footballers are from very humble backgrounds and they, you know, they know adversity and financial insecurity better than most. And, 
a lot of them do choose to give a lot back to their community, families, friends, sport, whatever. A lot of them do. And then Marcus Rashford, this English player, started this campaign against child uh, food poverty, which is you know, a huge issue in, in England in 2020. You know, yeah. children go hungry and, and unimaginably um, it, it took a, a football player to say, I went through that, and this is important, to kind of create awareness. So it's not like the player just gave his own wages. He, he did proper, you know, active, transformative social action, which is really important. And, and I see it in South America all the time with footballers. They, they do become very involved. They might build a hospital or a school or even a town or put electric lighting in, 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 a, in a neighborhood where they grew up where there's no running water or electricity. They do this a lot. And I think as, as societies, we can uh, keep focusing and rescuing that, that side of, of the sport, the, the one that can, you know, that can reach people and implement change and create awareness of issues without always just kind of going, oh no, the player should earn less or the player should earn more or the player should score more or we should sell him, he's always on the bed. So I think that kind of very limited grid by which we judge the game, it's okay for the duration of the game, which is ultimately quite short. And then, you know, if, well, I don't think we have to, but, but we could, um, just be a little bit more flexible about our, our powers to judge and consume certain aspects of the industry and advocate and encourage others. So I would say buy less branded trainers and give more to, you know, courses that, that footballers endorse that, 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 that we agree with. I mean, some footballers are also notoriously, um, you know, ideologically not aligned with, with my views. I mean, in, in South America, a lot have become politicians in the extreme right and all sorts of things. Okay. But that, you know, they're people like everyone. So I think if we encourage them to be thinking sentient beings, I mean, some examples are really interesting, like Faustino Asprilia in Colombia, who is, you know, permanently kind of advocating for anti-wokeness and In your Twitter bio that you're an anti-VAR mingler and I was just curious as to what you think something like VAR does to this sort of because um, for me I think it's like the way it distorts something which is like the most purest thing in football which is the few seconds after there is a goal and now you have this sort of <laughs> like weird cultural thing where you know people players are less wanting to celebrate goals because they'll they'll look stupid and end up on a meme like Pep Guardiola or or there's also like very new thing of people before we had the, the lockdowns crowds celebrating the kind of celebrating yes. a VAR decision, right? You know, which is a very, it was like, you know, no one had ever celebrated a VAR decision or something like that before. And what do you think this kind of will do to the way we sort of consume football and also how like football sort of is, is uh, plays out for people? 
Well, I, I don't like VAR because I, I, to me, it just it slows the game. Well, it doesn't slow it. It doesn't slow the game. It breaks it up in in mm. a very American it kills way, it. and I think it, yeah, it just breaks the flow of it. You know, I think mistakes are part of it, and 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 really bad ones such as the hand of God are. Uh, you know, VAR, somebody said when Maradona died, VAR would have not, you know, would have not allowed either of those two goals. Yeah. And that's, yeah. um, uh, th- th- then, so then the whole history of humanity would be different. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't like VAR because of that. But I, it annoys me. I think it's, the, it's part of the Americanization of, of, of soccer. I think it's, you know, um, in, in the mid-90s when the US was started to toy with the idea of, of soccer being part of their world and they had held the World Cup and so on. And um, um, the things we were looking at that would, what would make it appealing for the American audience was more goals, less, uh, less dribbly, more action. And VAR kind of does that, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot more, I don't know, set pieces and uh, to Penalties me, it, it, and it, hand, exactly. And, yeah, yeah, and... yeah, yeah. But, but then I guess, you know, technology is part of the world and, and we all have to adapt. And I think, you know, I'm closer to a hundred than zero in, in age. And I suspect that, that it's people closer to zero that, that will live in a world that is, far more comfortable with technology than than certainly I am and, and, and my generation. So in tennis, I, you know, I remember the debate about the eye that would yeah. say if the ball uh, was the in or out. Eye, and we yeah. were all going, oh, but then John McEnroe, what will he do? And it was like, well, maybe he'll be a rock star or a TV <laughs> commentator. You know, <laughs> we'll all find something to do. The, the technical stuff never even works. Like oftentimes I feel they interrupt the game, then they make a decision, and afterwards everyone still is annoyed. More angry them. than they were like, even before. No <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's no uh, yeah. decision. It's still I've ambiguity. I've yet to see, exactly. I've yet to see VAR, a VAR moment that makes me think, oh, thank God that VAR was there, you know. Exactly. That's made it better. But, but who knows? I mean... I don't see what the arguments are for it uh, at all, but if if it's here to stay, then I guess it's, beauty will happen around it anyway, ultimately. Um, and, and maybe people will go, well, it was, you know, VAR and all it, but it was the best dribble past seven players anyone's ever seen <laughs> in the history. So, uh, so, you know, we will all, like, respect the altar of the of the gifted whether or not it, it, it it's allowed yeah no so, so to bring it back to the to the book chapter I mean before before I'd read it I'd never quite um realized quite how close apparently that Messi came to playing for Spain so you have the situation with the hastily yeah. arranged uh, under 20s um Friendly against Paraguay, so basically just to tie him down to the mm. national team. How has he ever, like, in the years since, sort of spoken about this, or how is this incident kind of viewed in Argentina? And is this sort of like viewed as kind of a maybe black mark against his, like, quote unquote, Argentinianness that this was sort of a somewhat possibility? No, I know. I, I don't think it would be a black mark against him at all because I don't think. Um... 
you know, I in how he's viewed. I, I, I would, yeah, I, yeah, I, no, yes, I, but no. First, I don't think it's a very particularly well-known episode. I mean, I myself only heard about it fairly recently, but I think it's interesting in that um, that's what you that's what you kind of that's what you expect. Is that you know that when when a great talent appears, but people will go to great lengths to to claim and hog that yeah. that great talent. Um, I don't. Other than that, I don't think there's any. There's nothing really underhand about it, or um, I don't think he was going to play for Spain. I mean, his father and himself were, were closely involved in setting this up, so I think they wanted to make sure that he would be, certainly his father, yeah. that he would be, a, you know, an Argentinian player. The, the, the rules about nationality change quite, you know, periodically. So we, we, we have kind of famous cases of players um, in Argentina who maybe played for a, a, another country in their youth without realising and then they were ineligible to play for the national team, but but ultimately that that's shifts. Um, I think the whole concept of nationality will shift over time, anyway. And there's there might be some leeway. Players can change nationality the same way that people can, you know. Mm, and yes. um, but but no, I don't think. I mean, I like the anecdote because I didn't realize. Uh, again, you know, on this, this concept of almost or Cassie, you think, well, he almost wasn't even Argentinian, but, yeah. um, but, 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 so it was really to play with that idea. But I, I don't think he himself was so keen on playing for Spain that that the Argentina, you know, holds that against him at all. And I suspect if he had signed up for Spain, we might not even have known. You know, you might go, oh, that that player was born in Rosario, a bit like Trezeguet, who who played for France. You know, is is kind of an Argentinian personality that we all quite like, mm. even though he played for France. It's not, you don't, you know. Again, I kind of call on other arts and fields, and there's all sorts of uh, uh, people who are recognised as Argentinian who've invented the big biro or won Nobel prizes for chemistry or, you know, great composers of Hollywood or, you know, there's enormous range of, of, of Argentinians who we take great pride in saying, Oh, they're from Argentina like we are, but in fact worked and operated under another nationality, whether through passport or through living abroad or whatever. Um, so Messi could have been that. He could have been a Spanish player for Spain that we all said, oh, he's from Rosario, you know. And, and we'd claim him as our own as well, I think. Which is kind of a nice act, right? Because the challenges is exactly what you meant earlier, the, the nationality, right? Because oftentimes it is not just that, but people come from different places, move somewhere else and interact with people from all over the places. So yeah. it's more fluid, I guess. But then do, um, do Argentinians hold against Messi that he never actually won a title with the team then? I think some, yeah. I mean, again, I think there's a, there's a, a media-fed narrative that is, oh, he still owes us something. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, 
I think if you stop people randomly in the street, they would be more proud and delighted by his existence than, than yeah. angry that he didn't win a World Cup. It helped to reach a final in, in 2014. That, that was great. That was very good. Uh, and then I think Russia to 2018, Argentina, the whole football scene was a shambles. It wasn't just Messi or the team or the squad. It was the entire industry was complete but breaking point. And ultimately, I think most people were just very disappointed in football and no one was finding that escape. Again, interviewing the 1986 players, a, a concept they draw back to over and over is bringing joy to the people. We were just happy that we, we played for the people. We brought them joy. We made them happy. And I think the 1978 World Cup is particularly kind of remembered for that because it was a, such a difficult, dark time here. And then there was this moment of joy. And I think I, I doubt very much um, generally Argentinians wouldn't say that Messi hasn't brought us joy. I think he absolutely has. So whether you want to win a cup for extra joy, yeah, sure, everybody loves winning. Everybody loves winning. But if, if it's good, if the football's good, like it was in 2014 or 2006, yeah. even 2010, you, you know, you can carry the crowd with you. There's something to enjoy, even if there's an injustice or something to complain about, or everyone can partake and say, well, you shouldn't have done him on the left, him on the back. Why did you put him on? You know, Messi needed somebody else. What was that? And that's part and parcel of the, of the process. Everyone is, is a participative agent, if you like, in the, in the discussion of what football is doing for us as a society. But ultimately, um, the experience of 2018 was just no joy for anybody. Nobody cared. It was horrible. It was full of rumors. It was it was uh, it was bad, and 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 you could really sense that. It was like, oh well, we don't we don't love this anymore, and, and there was that, no has joy. Yeah. Has that changed at all in, since 2018? Is that the sort of connection? Well, it's difficult because 20, uh, 2020 has been particularly yeah. hard, hasn't it? So it's difficult to say. We'll see. We'll have to see. I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's it'd be interesting to watch Messi over the next year and a half, see if he if he has another World Cup in him and what and what happens. Um and again, you know, just to, to close off on the the point of the, the kind of pandemic time where there was no football and it it was imaginable that everybody could die, including Maradona. Um, we, we just have to see whether there is a post-pandemic time where crowds go back to the stadiums, games are played fluidly and there is a World Cup and, and maybe Messi will, will shine in such a scenario or, or maybe he'll just grow into a quite old man that has a lovely restful life away from the limelight, who knows, anything's possible. You, you mentioned in the chapter um, when you interviewed um, Messi that, you know, he, you asked him about his sort of uh, competitiveness and, you know, whether he sort of, as he'd grown older, managed to sort of um, manage the, that competitive instinct. And I'm just... Yeah, kind I can't. Of... <laughs> and it doesn't... No. no, no, not at all. But I'm just kind of, I, I wonder, like, is the sort of 
because I do remember in particular from the 2018 World Cup seeing the the, the teams come out for the France-Argentina game and the, the camera focuses on Messi's face and he looks absolutely like that he would rather be, you know, anywhere else on earth. And I just kind of yeah. wonder whether this this sort of like pressure or sort of this weight that you see him, and maybe it's just perspective that maybe you don't quite see that he feels when he's with Barcelona, whether that's purely uh, self-imposed weight or whether that sort of comes from the outside, sort of both the legacy of Maradona and that, that kind of thing. I doubt the legacy of Maradona weighs on him that much. I, yeah. I really think that is a, a media construct. I mean, I don't know, but, you know, I, they're so different in, in, in every way. Um, I think, I don't know. I mean, we, we you know, we, we learned that he had these terrible nausea and vomiting kind of almost stage fright uh, reactions before playing international games fairly recently, well, 2014. And it, that, that was kind of, oh, does that happen to him? But again, you know, the, uh, you know Marta Argerich is one of the best pianists in, in the world and in, in living memory, um, who's also an, an Argentinian who lives in Europe. She gets terrible stage fright to the point that she sometimes runs away and just goes, I'm not coming on. And then you, they have to give people their money back to the tickets. I mean, she's been doing it for... 30 what? odd years she just because yeah. I can't play I can't play I can't play I'm and and just doesn't so yeah. you know a great artist has that I don't I don't know if it's self-inflicted or somebody else's fault or whatever clearly Messi has it and mm -hmm. I and and I've heard less about it in Barcelona than with, with the national team but I, sus I suspect the pressure of, of playing for Argentina is much uh, you know, much bigger, and the, the World Cup is a, is a much bigger stage, and the, the the command of the world attention is almost absolute um, yeah. as the tournament progresses. So if you're um, if you're out early, then the, you know the group stages aren't as, as as full of tension as a final. I mean, the final, you know, is is uh, everyone on the planet watches it. Mm. It's extraordinary, um, so. But this this is it wasn't also an exclusive World Cup thing. Like I remember the shootout against Chile when uh, twenty sixteen mm, after he the, misses yeah. and he's yeah. off to the side and it's you know it's absolute distraught. So it seems there is something. Yes. Well, that, there. He, that's yeah, right? no, no, he definitely he he retired then. Didn't yeah, he? he actually quit. Yes. No, I think there's a point at which he's had enough. I mean, that was interesting because he had been very outspoken about the bad organization and the mess that was the Argentine Football Association and uh, it, you know unusually for him he had been critiquing the the, the bits that aren't football yeah. quite vehemently but um, but but I don't I mean is your question whether he that's comes from him or whether it's it's pressure from the people or, or I think it comes from him but I think yeah. he's a genuinely you know, he's a, he's a he's a he's genuinely a talented guy who wants to conduct his talent yeah. in the best possible circumstances. And if the circumstances aren't right, he will say so. But obviously, you know, that it's a different personality to Maradona. So Maradona would would create a massive scandal. He'd, you know, 
storm into meetings. He'd coordinate a world mm. movement of players and then fizzle into yeah. nothing. But he would be like, ah, it's all out. Word. Well, Messi's clearly quite reserved, possibly, you know, a, a little bit on the spectrum. He's, he's pathologically shy. He finds it very difficult to talk. You know, it's just different personalities. But clearly he is... Um, superbly gifted and completely aware of that. It's not, he doesn't not know that he's the best in the world or one of the five best in the world, yeah. which is really, really important. Um, and, and also willing to, to, to say his bit. And I think it, in a way, an interesting version of this is playing out with Barcelona now so from a few months back to now. And again, I think we should watch that space because it, it's quite a fascinating progression from player to something, whether he'll become involved in running the club or move to another club or, or what could happen. Do you, but, do you think there's it, a chance he'll come back to Argentina and finish his career there? Or do you think it'll be, who knows? I would be very surprised if he did that. I think he would find that very difficult personally, but who knows, you know, who knows? Um, I can imagine him more being involved in Barcelona at, at a different level than player yeah. than I can in Argentina. <laughs> Who knows? But the, I mean, there's complete guess. You know, yeah. I wouldn't. Uh, but 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 I do think he's got some playing time left, and I and I'm interested to see what he does with it. And I think he was very keen to move, um, and they really did thought that in, much in the way that the. Hollywood studios used to do that to um, the big stars in the 30s. You know, you just tie them down and say, either work for us or don't work at all. Yeah. And that was quite difficult to, to witness with Messi. It just felt wrong, like from another time. Like you say, I feel like the situation would have, um, like the differences in sort of personality types between Messi and Maradona, how that situation last summer would have played out with it less sort of introverted character at yeah. the center of it. Yeah, for sure. Podcast Network.